Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Josh Wall. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Fifth, and I also make music fall off of music stands. We're excited that you're with us, whether you are a longtime member or new, uh, whether you are here to celebrate Mother's Day, or whether uh, this is your home and it's a regular part of your rhythm. It is good to come together and worship, and we are excited that you're with us this morning. Our scripture reading this morning and our scripture today comes from the book of John, John chapter 4. If you grew up in the church, it's a familiar story to many of you. It's the story of the woman at the well, and the reading is from the, the end of that story, but the beginning goes roughly like this, that Jesus is walking through the countryside and he stops and rests outside of a village uh, while his disciples go in to get food and he waits at a well and a woman comes up. They have a conversation, a dialogue back and forth uh, and we pick up part of the way through that story. So we invite you to listen. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then, the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, The woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvest a crop of eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. This is the word of the Lord. It must have been fascinating to live in those first couple hundred years uh, in the birth of Christianity. Uh, We all have those seasons and times and those games you play uh, in high school or college or the late night conversations where you do. If you could go back anywhere to any time and relive something, aside from the answer that everyone who goes to church at some stage is obligated to give of, I want to go see Jesus. So if you take that off the table and I could pick another time when I could go back, it would be this those first chunk of years because I am fascinated by it and I think it is so interesting. The reason 
I think it's interesting. Uh, there's a couple, right? There's a bunch of things I could say, but I'm going to talk about one. And the one in particular is I am very curious how and why the Christian faith spread in the way that it did. See, the, the Roman world uh, and the early Christians experienced a form of persecution, right? And, and that all stemmed around uh, the way in which Roman society functioned. Roman society was very religious, right? Paul references this in Acts, right? He's on uh, Mars Hill and he says, I see you're all very religious. And that was dominant throughout the culture at the time. The Roman world was one that had gods and many and many and many kinds of gods. And these gods, uh, it was a more the merrier kind of affair. And so what that meant is that there were gods of the, the natural elements of air and water and land and fire. There were gods of regions and countries and cities, and there were gods of households, right? So your house, if it was a big enough estate or had enough power or authority, could have its own god that went along with it. And what it meant to live in the Roman world was really, was really this. So when you would go out, there were gods everywhere, and the gods were often angry. The gods were out to get you or punish you or to get what they want. They were vengeful, vindictive. They were not always nice guys and girls. And so when you engaged in the culture, what you would do is you were trying to not offend the gods. And so you would go, if you were to leave your house, you would give some kind of honor or homage or something to your local household god. And if you went to the marketplace where there was another god, you would give the same or a different, whatever would be appropriate there. Maybe it would be money. Maybe it would be you would bow right. You would say the right thing. You would travel to a new town. You would do the same thing there. Everywhere you went, there was gods upon gods upon gods upon gods. Christianity runs into issue really quick. Because Christians affirmed and said publicly and out loud, there's only one God and his son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. There is a trinity and that is it. And that runs afoul with Roman culture. Because Roman culture, not only if, if the gods are coming to smite me, the gods didn't really care who else they smited along with me. Right? Zeus's aim is not that good if you're a Roman. And so by me affirming and saying there is no gods and this whole thing is hooey. There is one God and his son, Jesus Christ. Like by affirming that, it is rubbing something in the eye of the culture. And yet, Christianity grows like wildfire. It is nothing but a social cost to join the faith. Nothing but cost. And yet, it grows and grows and grows. It's also interesting to be a believer and to be a Christian or to be engaged in that conversation wherever you find yourself today. It used to be 70 years ago, if you want to go back to the 1950s, there was a net social benefit in what it meant to be a believer. Right? There's, a, there's a story of Peter Drucker, uh, the famous uh, leadership guru, consultant. He moves to New York and he's going to buy a house in Hoboken. And he goes, to, he goes to get a mortgage and he goes to get a loan. And he talks to the banker and they're exchanging pleasantries and they're talking. And the banker says, oh, this is all great. By the way, where do you go to church or synagogue or whatever that is? Uh, and Peter Drucker, who doesn't really believe in much of anything, just said, like, gets a little offended. And it's like, well, what does that have to do with getting a mortgage or a loan? And the banker says, well, if we don't know you go somewhere, then why would we think you're a good person and why would we want to lend you money? 
right? 70 years ago, there was an advantage that came that was pretty clear culturally. And I am not, uh, I was not alive 70 years ago. Some of you were, um, and I've heard your stories and broadly, this is, this for the most part is pretty true, right? There was advantages culturally and socially to being part of a church in a faith community. If you fast forward 30 years, so instead of 70 years ago, if we look at like 40 years ago, and we look, say, in the early 80s and 90s, it was much more of a mixed bag, right? Uh, Culture didn't know broadly, North American, American culture didn't know what to do with Christianity. There was parts of us they did not like, but they loved our ethics. They loved our morals, you know? And so I don't know how I feel about these Christians. It's obviously not my thing, but, but the Sermon on the Mount, it's got some good stuff in it. Right? And it makes you, I think it makes you a better person. It doesn't work for me, but if it works for you, that's okay. Right? It was a, a neutral to a mixed bag. And today, we've shifted, and this isn't everywhere. It's generational and location and demographic specific, I think. But we are, have moved or are moving to a place where instead of a social benefit, there's a social cost to being part of the faith. And again, this isn't universal. I lived in New York uh, after I graduated. Calvin, uh, my wife was in grad school out there and I went to seminary out there. And for the four years that I lived in New York, there was very much a, a social cost. I worked retail jobs and I would explain what I did and people would strike up conversations. I was selling backpacking and camping equipment. So I would sell them that. And they're like, what do you do when you're not here? Say, oh, I'm a grad student. What do you study? Theology. And there was one time that I will always remember this short Jewish gal. She told me about her synagogue. She told me about what she had believed in. And we were just chatting as I was selling her camping equipment. She turned on a dime and said, the problem with you preachers and just lit me up. But in my time in New York, I could say that about a bunch of different things. That was unique. But there was a social cost. I've been in Grand Rapids for 10 years now. And for me in my context, there's a growing social cost. And, and in some ways, we can view that as defeating or defeated. But I think that's the wrong approach, right? This gives us... Uh, opportunities that we didn't always have before. And in many ways, uh, it calls us back to those early Christian experiences and helps us understand and resonate from what we can learn from their early experience. The story that we're dealing with today, the text that we're dealing with today comes out of John 4. And it's the story of the woman at the well. Uh, It's John in particular, I think, because out of all the gospels, we broadly believe that John was written the latest We know that John lived the longest, that he outlived the rest of the apostles. They have all died. John is an old man. John's not writing this himself. And John is dictating to someone else, best as we can tell, what's going on. And he is telling the stories of Jesus so that they can be recorded. Because all of the apostles had communities and tribes that rallied around them. And so you can picture his younger disciples saying, John, John, we got to get this down. The days are numbered, buddy. Let's go. And so they start to tell the story. It also means that this is in the time after the initial wake of Jesus' death and resurrection. The church is in chaos and then it begins to bloom, right? It takes a couple years for it to really take off. And this is in the period where it's booming. And so it is interesting with that context to see what happens with this woman and what happens in the story and what it means for you and I in the way we live our lives today. So, 
three things that I think show up from the woman at the well. The first thing to note is that uh, this woman in the booming of faith and the sharing of her faith, this woman is an ordinary woman, right? There is nothing spectacular that we're given about her. And it's just an interesting side commentary and note that often for us, when we think about how we share our faith and live in a place with social costs, we often defer to professionals. But the story we see out of this is that this is an ordinary woman. More than that, though, uh, there's, there's some context that's helpful that we don't always understand, right? There's a reason why the story sets it up the way that it does. Jesus is walking through, the, walking along the road. The road is not a big fashion thing. The road is hard packed dirt. Uh, it's maybe gravel. It's probably not paved at this stage. It's about enough for two people to walk, maybe a little wider. It's not a big thing. And they're walking through, and they're walking through Samaria. That's its own separate sermon. But they were, had a, a an uneasy tension broadly with Jews within Jesus' tribe. They walk through, they walk outside of a village. Jesus stops and rests at a well and the disciples go in to get food. And this woman comes out. Now, if you were an ancient hearer, you would have immediately known that that is weird. That was atypical. That was not to be expected. And the reason why is that, uh, actually, let's do, I'm, we normally don't do this, but I'm going to do a little interactive thing. How many of you have ever been anywhere in the Middle East? Raise your hand. All right. The Middle East, can I get an amen from those people? The Middle East is hot year-round. Amen? That matters for this story. Because, so there's a well. The well was some kind of aquifer, probably an underground river. This would be not sand dune desert, but barren, scrabbly, stone. It looks and feels more like chalk at times. And, and in the midst of that, there's a well. The well would have been dug out by hand, obviously. And then they would have laid in brick and stone. They would have laid in something to, to hold the sides up so you could get to the water and get it out. Now, the Middle East is hot and Israel is hot. And so what that means is that the water uh, heats up throughout the day. And so what they learned early on is that if you wanted water that was cool and refreshing, you went before the sun came up and you went early and the village would go out early because you'd send your house or you would go or you'd send your kid if they were old enough to go out and get water from the well. You'd bring it home. You had big clay jars that you would pour it into and you'd keep it cool. And if you kept it out of the shade, it more or less stayed cool all day. But by the middle of the day, by lunchtime, those stones and bricks have heated up and the water inside the well is no longer cool and refreshing. It's hot, right? It's warm. It's the bottle of water that you keep in your car in the case of emergency. And then you drink it and you go, well, I guess I'm alive, but I'm worse for that experience. The water is that. So when Jesus is hanging out by the well and this woman shows up to get water, everyone in the community would have known, huh, that's weird. That's not when you go get water. So she shows up. She begins to talk with Jesus. Jesus sees her, affirms her, calls some truth out of her reality, right? This woman is an is ostracized and an outsider. You know, Jesus says, you have had five wives and the man you're living with now is not your husband. You've had five husbands not five wives. You've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. She's been pushed to the margins of society. They still tolerate her in town, but she's not welcome at social functions. 
She gets looks when she walks down the road. She hears whispers as she moves. But Jesus sees her, engages with her, says some things back in the opening bit where she says, basically, are you the Messiah? And he says, I am he. And she is transformed. And then what happens out of this, which is kind of amazing, this woman has, has this, begins with this moment of transformation and then she runs back to her village, right? The woman in the story has an orientation that after experiencing her own moment of transformation, she knows her friends, she knows her family, she knows what they deal with and how they feel and out of empathy and love, she returns to her neighbors to tell of what's happened. Come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Is he the one that will restore and redeem the world? She doesn't say yes, but she asks the question. The early church spread through, through ordinary people, not big formal programs, not big external things, but ordinary people who were transformed themselves and then out of empathy and love turned to those around them and said, how could I not share this? She's also doing ordinary things, right? She's an ordinary woman who's doing ordinary things. Jesus refers to this line as he, he calls the sharing, right? He calls it his food and his drink. Well, what's food and drink? What does that mean, right? In case you didn't know, food and drink is not something you can stockpile up and do big fancy versions and then not do again for three months. Food and drink is common, it's everyday, and it's sustaining. In evangelism, sharing your faith, we call it titles and everything like that, but a sense of empathy and love to the people towards you, when we live it in the way that Christ lives it out for us, is that same kind of thing. It's common, it's everyday, and it's sustaining. It's an orientation as much it is as it is anything else. You know, if you look at the work that she does, it's, she goes back and she just effusively bleeds out how she feels because she's been transformed. Not out of obligation or duty, but because something has changed. And if you've ever had that moment in your life, if you have had those moments when it feels like something in you died and something else in you was born, when it felt like the weight of obligation, of duty, of all the things you are supposed to do was released, in the words of Christ where he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When you've experienced that, how do, are you not empathetic to those around you and find appropriate ways to share not big and fancy, but common, everyday, and life-giving. Not cornering people on a street and saying, if you die tonight, do you know where you're going to go? But of those that are around us, living in such a way that reflects the gospel as we have been impacted by it and understood it. The reality, though, is that most of us don't share our faith. The reality is that Christians in North America, and I could pull out statistics if we needed to, don't. There's a bunch of reasons for that. 
I think it boils down to four. And here I'm actually pulling from Tim Keller, who is the, the pastor and author out of New York. And, and Tim says that there's four reasons why we tend not to share our faith. Pride, fear, pessimism, and indifference. We don't share out of pride. We don't share out of, we look at someone else and we often look down on someone else. God can't do anything with them. Have you seen them? Because we're so good and we have our life together. You can really tell a person of faith if you ask them their story and they say, and they say, me a Christian? How am I a Christian? It's the funniest thing. I don't think I have any right to stand here. But through the grace of God, something has changed. We don't share our faith out of pride because we feel that we are right and someone else is wrong in our hearts or in our heads. Sometimes we don't share out of fear. We're afraid of what will happen. We're afraid of the social cost. And make no doubt that depending on your demographics and who you're talking about, that there is a concrete social cost. We are afraid of what will occur and so we keep our mouth shut. We're afraid of, because of pessimism. We don't share for fear that it won't do any good. Look at them. This won't work. The world is broken. Look at our fragmented society. What is the point? Right? I could, but it's, they're just going to turn around and blow it up anyway. The whole thing's going to go belly up. Or you do it out of indifference. Indifference is tricky because I don't think we are ever willfully indifferent. I think we look at the scenarios where we could choose to invest and go, I'm busy. I have other things to do. I don't think we dismiss it. I think we choose other options often. And this is not a scenario to try to produce guilt. This is not a scenario to say you ought to eh, 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 eh. It's just dealing with the reality that we have before us. Many of us don't share our faith because of pride, fear, pessimism, or indifference. I think the, the third thing that comes up in the story is a response to that then. This woman shares her faith, shares what Jesus has said to her, shares being on the margins of society and being embraced and drawn into the middle of being on the margins of a culture and being accepted by God and redeemed out of joy. Right? She does them out of joy and not into joy. And that's important too. When we share something out of joy, we share again, like I had talked about earlier, because something has changed within us and how could we not share it with those around? Not as a weapon, not as a hammer, not as manipulation, but out of empathy and love because something has changed in me and my friends who are far from God, that breaks my heart because I know what it has meant for me. We share out of joy, out of our response. Often we in the church try to share into joy, to think of it that way. We share out of obligation because we know it's something we're supposed to do. Because someone like me stood up here and said something like this and you felt like, I really should share my faith with my neighbor or with my cousin or my friend. But it's out of obligation and duty. It's out of a, a feeling like you should, not out of an overflowing and transformed life that leads to somewhere else. And that. That's not the way it works. We're called to share out of our sense of joy. It's the line, the sower and reaper may be glad together. And the reality is an empathetic joy overcomes our reservations. An empathetic joy overcomes fear and pessimism. It overcomes indifference and it overcomes pride. Because again, there but for the grace of God go I. 
I have no right to stand. And so how can I not share what God has done? At the end of the day, just to be frank, if we're to take an inventory, there are people in this room who if I said, do you have that joy? Has there been an experience? Can you recount something? And it is a vibrant and real today in your everyday life. That if we were honest, the answer would be no. Some of us would feel that and say, absolutely. And some of us would say, look, it's been really hard. Look, I feel really hurt by the church. I feel hurt by my friends. Some of us would say, I grew up going to church and it was something we did, but I don't know if it ever really connected with me. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure what to do with this. David, the, the psalmist and king, talks about this too in Psalm 51. Um, and he brings, and he says it this way, right? He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. We often talk in obligation and duty, and we presume that it is the obligation and duty of Christians to share their faith with the people around them. It is our obligation and duty to share the transformed joy of a life that we have. And if you are at a place where you have not experienced that, where that has been hurt, where it was a moment but it was crushed by the weight of life or the hardships that occurred, the response to that is not one of try harder. The response to that is a prayer that says, restore the joy of my salvation. Make me whole, O oh God. Heal me. Restore me into the person that you made me to be, the son or daughter whom you love and you affirm. And out of that is the call to respond. Not out of duty, not out of obligation, or because this is what my parents have done, or this is what I heard in Sunday school but because we have a God who stepped down, who is Emmanuel, God with us, and stepped into our world to redeem and restore us. We talk about uh, the big four every once in a while, of the big four commandments that Jesus gives, of repent, rethink, believe, put your trust in, wait to be healed, restored, and empowered, and then we go. This is wait especially if you are hurting or lonely, if you have been run over or crushed, if you are feeling healthy and whole but don't know where to go, that is weight too. And in all these things, we learn from the, story of the, from, from the story of the woman at the well, we learn from the early Christians that this is the rhythm that we go into, that we are transformed first and then we bleed ourselves out through an empathetic love to our neighbors, to our friends, to those that are close, that you look at them and not out of pity, but out of love does your heart break because you know what freedom and life truly can be. So here's how we're going to end today. We're gonna to end with a, a time of prayer. 
Because a sermon and a worship service is not just about hearing things or having good ideas. A sermon and a worship service is about changing, an invitation for us to repent, to rethink how we do things and who we are. So how do we end with this with really two, two focuses? For some of us, we need to pray for joy. We need to pray for that transformative experience. We need to pray to be healed. We need to pray to have our joy restored, as David said. And for some of us, and I can name many people, some here and some elsewhere, I can name family members who would say this, that they would say, look, I want to share my faith, but everybody I know is a Christian. I work at a Christian uh, company or college or campus or school. I am invested in my church where everyone is a Christian too. And if that is you, my friends, then I, we need to pray for a field and a harvest. Not foreign, not far away, but the people that are close to us, that are open to you, that like you, and not in a manipulative way, but in orientation towards empathetically sharing the redemption that you have experienced in Christ. And so here's how we're going to end. We're going to take a moment, and I'll pray and set it up. And I want to invite you to pray about those two things. Do you need healing and joy and restoration? Is that feeling there, but you go, where shall I go? What shall I do? And then we invite you to pray for that. So, let's pray. And there will be a time of silence and I will conclude us at the end. Heavenly Father, it is, it is good to come and worship. It is good to hear words from you. God, I pray for the people who are here that in silence you speak to us and nudge us towards joy and healing or that you nudge us to be sent out to a mission and to a field. God, speak to us in the midst of this and give us a word from you. God, we know you meet us in this place. We know you heal us in this place. You give us joy in this place because your spirit and your presence is here. God, speak to us. Give us words of grace and truth and help us to encounter you this day, wherever we find ourselves tomorrow and for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.